The Fanboy, episode 127. Hi everybody, Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is episode 127, I got it right that time, of the Fanboy Podcast. How's everybody doing out there? Uh, Look, something amazing happened last week, and I want to start the show off with that, right? Because I spent most of that episode, I spent most of 126, well, thinking it was 125, but I spent most of 126 talking about Superman and waiting for Superman and wanting to have more time with my old friend and how wonderful it is to not have to wait for a Superman movie anymore. And then something interesting happened because as soon as I was done recording it, as soon as I finished the edit and I'm getting ready to release it and I've already kind of tweeted out what today's topics are going to be and all that stuff, as soon as I'm done with all that, news breaks of a Superman reboot produced by J.J. Abrams is official. It's on the way. This news broke as soon as last week's episode was concluded. And for those of you who are subscribed to the Revenge of the Fans YouTube channel, you watched a, you probably watched a five-minute uh, sort of breaking news update from me where I was just giving you an on-the-spot response to this news. Uh, But I didn't actually get a chance to talk about it here on the show. And uh, I don't know if you know this about me, but I am something of a Superman fan. I don't know, uh, you know, if there's any way that you could have told that about me. But listen, this is huge news. And it's interesting to me, though, because technically this is like the third time now that I've been at the beginning of this kind of uh, life cycle for a Superman movie. You know, for some of you, this is like your first reboot. You know, for some of you, Man of Steel was your introduction to Superman on film. And then, you know, this is whatever Abrams cooks up here, unless it involves Cavill, this is going to be the first time that you've had to let go of what you liked in the past and try and be, and be, and be ready to embrace what's coming in the future. And for me... That happened first with Superman Returns in 2006. And even though, yes, technically, that's a sequel. Technically, it's related to the Donner films. In a lot of ways, still, it's a cast I don't know with a creative team I've never seen work on Superman. This is still going to be this weird attempt to bring Superman back to the public psyche after 19 years away from cinemas. So even though it was a sequel... It felt a lot like a fret, like, like 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 a like a reboot. It felt like a, a whole restart, a relaunch of having Superman on the big screen again. So I remember, you know, when that news broke and all the different iterations of what that project was going to be until they finally settled in on Brian Singer and his X Men Two team are going to give us Superman Returns. Then. Uh, I don't know, something like five years later, after all kinds of back and forth as to whether or not we get a sequel, then the news broke that Christopher Nolan was going to Godfather, quote unquote, a new Superman reboot, and that he was speaking with directors and that his brother and David Goyer had all these ideas. So now 
I have to once again prepare for an all-new relaunch of Superman. And this time it really is all new because it has no ties to the previous films. So now, for the second time, I had to sort of prepare myself for another auteur, another storyteller to step in into this familiar world that I love so much and kind of put their own stamp on it and take this character in, in, in the direction that they see fit. And then Man of Steel came and here we are eight years later and there hasn't been a sequel, but rather it sounds like now we're getting a reboot. So now once again, I have to do the mental work to kind of break, you know, prepare myself for what's coming next. Prepare myself for the flood of rumors that are going to come and all the wild speculation about the type of story that Abrams wants to tell. And granted, he's not directing it. He's just producing it. But the person he hired to write it is very interesting. And that's Ta-Nehisi Coates, a journalist, an essayist with a very sort of political background who actually has a connection to comic book writing, only it's over on the Marvel end of things. He's written on, on, on a couple of different characters there, but his run on Black Panther reportedly inspired the take that they built the movie around. So Ta-Nehisi Coates is no newcomer. He's no slouch. He's got chops. And what I like about him and his writing and his approach to these kinds of stories is that they have something to say. And I, I love it when my Superman story, or well, any story really, but I do love it when a Superman story has something to say. And while we're going to get to Coates in a moment, I guess I want to just focus on the Abrams element of this news. Um, because look, Abrams has an interesting past. Abrams... You know, he's produced and directed some beloved things. He's produced and directed some very divisive, polarizing things. But one thing that I've always given the man credit for is he has a knack for taking something classic, taking something that has a, a built-in fan base and putting a fresh coat of paint on it and making it somehow fresh and new again for a new generation. You know, I've said this before, but just to like lightly recap, you know, uh, with the Mission Impossible series, ever since he came on with MI3 onward, you know, and Bad Robot kind of became responsible for the Mission Impossible franchise, those movies have been on like an endless winning streak. And everyone he's assigned and put together for those Mission Impossible movies, uh, you know, it's, it's all worked out tremendously. And then with Star Trek... You know, I, I know that there are some complicated feelings about his Star Trek movies. And I agree that the sequel, Star Trek Into Darkness, uh, was kind of a misstep. But that first one, the one that came out in 09, the reboot, like, look, I had never seen any Star Trek anything in my entire life. I'm not a Star Trek person. I was always more of a Star Wars person. And yet... I, I gave this reboot a shot because the trailers looked interesting. And remember, at that time, there was no possibility of more Star Wars movies. You know, Lucas was kind of out of it. The prequels had already come and gone. And it seemed like, well, we're not getting Star Wars anymore. But when I saw the trailers for, for the Star Trek reboot, I'm like, this actually feels a little Star Wars-y, right? And we ended up finding out that Abrams was a diehard Star Wars fan and that he was trying to bring some of that sensibility to Star Trek. So I guess it's no wonder that I ended up loving that reboot. But for me to go from never watching a Star Trek anything 
to seeing the Star Trek reboot in theaters two different times. That says something about what Abrams was able to do with that IP for someone like me, for an outsider like me to suddenly be that invested that I want to go and pay money twice and bring my mom to go say, you got to see this new Star Trek movie. Uh, yeah, that says a lot about how he approached it and the way it was able to bring in outsiders, you know, and then you could argue that maybe he did uh, a disservice to insiders, right? He did a disservice to the people who already had an, a relationship with Star Trek because it was sort of tonally different in the way that it approached the story. But all things being equal, Star Trek stands as another example of Abrams breathing fresh life into a long-standing franchise. And then, of course, there's what happened with Star Wars. And for me... When we come to that Star Wars trilogy, when we talk about that Star Wars trilogy that's become so sort of uh, divisive and polarizing in recent years after a pretty hot start. You know, when, when Force Awakens came out, I kind of feel like despite it feeling like somewhat of a retread, there was still general optimism for Star Wars and the fact that it was back and where things were going to go next. And somewhere along the way in these last few movie, last few movies that have been released, I feel like a lot of that goodwill has disappeared. And a lot of folks want to sort of you know hang that around Abram's neck and act like he's the one who ruined Star Wars. And honestly, I can't come with you there. I can't come with you there because... I actually really dug the hell out of The Force Awakens. You know, if there were a couple of creative decisions I could have had him take back, of course I would. You know, I don't think we needed to have a third Death Star type of thing. We've already destroyed a Death Star in A New Hope. We've already destroyed a Death Star in Return of the Jedi, giving us an even bigger Death Star for The Force Awakens. That was weak. That was weak sauce. And perhaps he relied a little too much on homages. And I agree that he was a little overly nostalgic and a little overly reverent to the original source material. But all things considered, when you think about what he had to accomplish with that film, when you think about the fact that he had to make a Star Wars movie that made you forget about how much you hated the prequels. Because remember, the prequels, while they're, you know, of course, as what, as what always happens, as time goes by, people start to say, you know, that movie, whatever it is, that movie really wasn't as bad as everyone says. And uh, of course, the prequels are now starting to take on a little bit of a new life with people discovering them without the high expectations and realizing, hey, some of these movies are actually pretty damn good. Or some of the stuff that Lucas was trying to say there was actually pretty damn good. But aside from that, you know, the world was not in love with what Lucas did with the prequels. And... It had been a very long time until since fans had seen the type of Star Wars that made them fall in love with it to begin with. And Abrams sort of tried to walk that fine line with The Force Awakens. He wanted to give you things that reminded you of why you fell in love with this galaxy to begin with, while mixing in new elements for things that you could look forward to in the coming sequels. And, you know, it's, it's kind of, um, you know, it's, it's not the most appealing and, 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 and surprising way to approach the material. It is a little bit like, wow, you're really just going to lean into the nostalgia, huh? 
But when you consider the fact that, again, he had to try to bring back the people who loved it, who were burnt out by the prequels, while also giving us something new. And I actually really think he he succeeded in that because where we went from The Force Awakens could have been to some very exciting places. And I'm not going to litigate what happened with The Last Jedi. That's not what this podcast is about. But for better or worse, certain creative decisions were made with The Last Jedi. And in general, Abrams was not in charge of all three of these movies. He was brought back for episode nine in an attempt to sort of, you know, fix and make sense of what The Last Jedi did to this Star Wars sequel trilogy. And listen, in trying to play cleanup in episode nine, listen, he made a sort of overstuffed, not entirely satisfying conclusion to the Skywalker saga. So I know a lot of people have sort of soured on Abrams over the years, but when I just think about how these things launch, how he does when he you know, breathes new life into these franchises, I really like The Force Awakens. I really like the Star Trek reboot. I really like all the Mission Impossible movies after number two, after John Woo did number two. And then Abrams came on and directed three and then produced the rest. I think those Mission Impossible movies are pretty damn great. Um, so overall, I think Abrams has this interesting way of approaching classic properties where he knows how to take what worked and add new elements to it that'll bring in outsiders and it'll feel familiar, but it'll also feel new at the same time. That's, that seems to be like his thing. And if he's going to do that with Superman, I'm all for it. And in a way, I'm very relieved that as of now, at least he's not directing it. As of now, he's only listed as a producer, and I like him in that capacity. I like him as the the team captain who puts, you know, the, uh, not even the captain, like more like the GM, like the general manager who puts the team together and then lets the team go do what they do. Abram seems to have an eye for putting teams together. He's put together some very nice director packages. He has an eye for talent. Matt Reeves came to be known by working with J.J. Abrams and that Cloverfield movie. You know, he he has an eye for talent and he has an eye for giving filmmakers what they need to tell the story they want to tell. So I like that Abrams is more in the producer role. I'm looking forward to seeing what other members he signs to this new team for Superman. But as of now, based on his first signing, I'm very, very impressed already. Because like I said before, Ta-Nehisi Coates is a serious writer with something to say, with chops, and he's not someone you hire if you're looking to make like a one-dimensional sort of fluff, bubblegummy, forgettable Superman movie. You know, this is someone you hire when you want to tell a Superman story that has some heft to it as well. And I love that, you know? So... In terms of where things could go from here, though, of course the rumors are that this will not be a Clark Kent movie, that this film that Abrams is developing with Coates might actually be the very first time we see a black Superman in movies, in live action, in any form. And, of course, the, the rumors would be either the Calvin Ellis version of the character or the Val Zod version of the character. And people have also sort of lumped in with this, 
the old reports that Michael B. Jordan was trying to get a black Superman movie produced two years ago at Warner Brothers. And ultimately, you know, the, the two sides couldn't come together on how to make that movie. But now the rumor you know, that people are sort of creating here is that he's back in the mix and that they have found a way to make that black Superman movie. So that's the rumor. But what's interesting is, you know, I see lots of people speaking about it as if it's fact already and already starting to kind of put forth their fan casts and they're asking me to share opinions on it as if it's official. And for me, I want to wait until we know a little more before I start speculating on this reboot. I just want to, you know, wait a little more because I'm not ready quite just yet to to say that this is absolutely going to be the Black Superman movie. Um, I'm not ready to go there yet because I've heard conflicting things. You know, while while THR and, and, and other notable places have let it be known that this will likely be a Black Superman movie, um, you know, I've spoken to people who actually know J.J. Abrams, who've partied with him, who've, who've discussed his filmmaking storytelling process before. And uh, what I hear is that Abrams is the type of guy who loves sticking to the core history of what the property is. He understands the importance of keeping the core fundamentals in place. And when you consider that, a Superman story that's not centered on Clark Kent is not really a classic story, is not really the mythology that people associate with Superman. So just based on his sensibilities and the fact that he does kind of lean more towards nostalgia and he does sort of seem to approach these reboots as a way to like take the classic but reinvent it a bit. I feel like if he's trying to take, you know, take the classic when it comes to Superman, um, there's nothing particularly classic about the Calvin Ellis or Val Zod depictions of the character. They're newer, they're lesser known, people don't really have an association with them just yet. You're going to have to explain to audiences who this is, right? So, you know, th th there's just, I want to know more before I sort of double down and start giving fan casts and full-on speculation for the type of story that Abrams would like Coates to write or that Coates pitched to Abrams. You know, I don't know how those two ended up working together, but until I know more about what they're coming up with, it's kind of hard for me to share opinions. But for now, what I will say is if it does end up being a black Superman, I'm 100% fine with that. And, you know... I, I, I should add, though, I'll be fine with it as long as it's Val Zod or Calvin Ellis. If they try to, like, race bend Clark Kent, I think, I mean, that's going to be a tough pill to swallow. And I'm going to want to know a lot more about how they intend to do that. Because maybe, you know, if they're going to try to make it that way, maybe they'll change the entire origin. Maybe this is going to be like an insanely bold sort of reinvention of the Superman myth where he doesn't end up in Smallville, Kansas, where, you know, a, a black orphan would stand out like a sore thumb. Maybe he lands more you know, closer to a city and is raised by a different sort of family. You know, I, I don't know, but I would need more information. You know, if you're going to race bend Clark Kent, I'm going to need more information because just on the surface, that seems like kind of an insane call, you know? Um, 
But with that said, all things considered, no matter which direction they take with this reboot, no matter whether it's Clark Kent, whether it's Val Zod, whether it's Calvin Ellis, whether it's a classic Superman or a black Superman, no matter what, I'm going to be okay. And it's because of Superman and Lois. It's because of the fact that I no longer feel like I'm waiting for a Superman. I've got my Superman and I get to spend an hour with him every week now for 15 weeks a year. You know, and they and they just announced too that season two, like his Superman Lois has already been renewed for a season two. So I know I've got several months worth of time to spend with my with a Superman that I care for and recognize and am rooting for in a setting and story that are exactly what I've been wanting to see him do for years. So in a way, since I've got Superman and Lois now, it's like I'm bulletproof. <laughs> You know, Abrams and Coates can come up with anything. You know, in this one, Superman is a mime from a clown planet who has an internal conflict with his clown relatives because he wants to be a mime and the best and but not just any mime. He wants to be super mime. Like, I don't care. Like if they announce that that's what it's going to be. I don't know where I came up with that. I would like I would be fine. I've got my Superman. Isn't it, I know it's like a weird, you know, I, I don't know if anyone else can relate to that. But considering, you know, if you're like me, and more than anything, what you want is more time with depictions of these characters that really speak to you. You know, I'm getting that. So they could do whatever they want. And listen, if the Abrams movie ends up being amazing then that's like a bonus. Then it's like, wow, so I've got great Superman on TV. I've got great Superman on the big screen. I just keep winning. But I guess, you know, me kind of being a hard luck, diehard Superman fan, I feel like there's no way that both will be awesome. I feel like, you know, and that's just me like a, like a battered dog. I'm just not used to good things happening to me. And I, I've had too many interesting Superman opportunities taken away from me over the years to believe that both the show can be great and the reboot can be great. But hey, if somehow that happens, uh, that'll be gravy. That'll be a nice little bonus. But even if what they come up with for this movie is a whole big heap of dog shit, I'm going to be okay because I have Superman and Lois. So that's the interesting thing on that. And about Superman and Lois, now we're going to transition a little bit into that because there was a second episode this week. And I'm not going to go too long this time because there's actually a new show for that. Every week now, I'm going to be the third chair on the Multiverse Musings vidcast or the Krypton's Legacy podcast. You know, Stephen Marshall and Adam Basciano uh, have a few shows and they combine for the multiverse and I'm going to combine with them so that we could break down every new episode of Superman and Lois on Wednesdays. So Tuesday nights... The new episode airs Wednesday night uh, or Wednesday day. Uh, Stephen, Adam, and I will get together to record an hour to hour and a half's worth of analysis on that episode. So I'm going to spare you the gory details, but what I can say for now, what, what I want to say here before going on to the next subject is that in a lot of ways, Superman and Lois feels like too good to be true. And it almost feels like it almost feels like too personal to me. And I say that because longtime listeners of this show who've heard me sort of occasionally tease the types of 
Superman stories I like and the kind of Superman story that I would write if I had the opportunity. You know, my version of the Superman mythology, longtime readers have kind of heard me drop, you know, little bits about what that is, what that would look like, what that would feel like. And what's insane to me is that Superman and Lois is like all of those things. It's almost to the point where like, I'm convinced that someone on the creative team has been listening to my show for these last few years and is stealing my ideas and I'm fine with it. <laughs> Listen, I, I know that that didn't happen, but, but like, I don't care how they got this. I don't know how they got into my brain to craft this Superman story, but let them keep pulling from it. I, I'm so excited by where things are going because there's so many elements, but just to give you one specific example of something that blew me away and that goes right in line with what I've been asking for from a Superman uh, property for years is the Krypton origin, the actual Krypton story. Because I was, I've been saying for years that an amazing way to approach this subject, an amazing way to approach the Superman mythology that would actually ground Kal-El's mission on Earth in something that's very relatable and urgent and important would be to not have Krypton blow up because of something scientific. Have Krypton blow up because of what its people did to it. So that Clark can understand, so that Kal-El can understand that part of what he has to do here on Earth is inspire us and teach us to be better so that we don't suffer the same fate as Krypton. You know, in most versions of the origin, when they talk about what destroyed Krypton, you're bound to hear all kinds of vague scientific ramblings about the proximity to the sun and the core was becoming unstable and the this and the that. It's always like some sort of inevitable scientific cataclysm is about to happen. And Jor-El's trying to warn people and nobody's listening to him. And that's like the basic way they handle the Krypton story. And I've always thought it would be far more interesting if what really destroyed Krypton was war. If what really what destroyed Krypton is a lack of unity amongst its people. And that one of the reasons he's sent to Earth is, so, is because they are at the beginning of their life cycle on Earth, but they could very much end up in this same position. And to my shock and absolute delight... That is the Krypton origin that is referenced in episode two of Superman and Lois. And you might have even missed it because like when I brought this up with Adam and Steven, they had, yeah, they, I, I think they were so blown away by just being in the fortress and how cool the designs for Krypto Kryptonopolis looked and all that, that it kind of like flew over their heads. And when I pointed it out, they're like, now I got to go back and watch it. So if you've watched it, but you missed this, go back and watch it. When we're listening to the Jor-El AI narrate what happened to Krypton as, as uh, Jordan and, and Cal or Clark are looking at that hologram, what he describes is Krypton's natural resources were being depleted. The planet was basically, you know, was we they were abusing the planet. And then when they realized that the planet isn't doing so hot, rather than coming together... They descended into war and you see like a big bomb go off on one side of the of Kryptonopolis and then you see the planet explode. 
So to me, that's everything. To me, that is the exact Krypton origin that I've been pitching on this show and in YouTube live streams. And to anyone who listened to me, that is my Krypton origin, where it really is an allegory for where Earth could be on a trajectory for. So for me, the fact that they're going there, the fact that they're having Lois Lane uh, in a, in a storyline that is, has all these socio-political undertones and has to tackle the sort of clash between left and right in this country, between rural and big city living, between the people who live in the small country and the people who live in the big cities. Um, Lois is going to become the voice of the underappreciated and forgotten common man in the middle of America. Whereas there is a very influential billionaire going out there making promises that he can't keep and filling these people with hope, Lois is there to try to let them know that, he's not, that, that what he's selling them is a lie. And at the same time, the way Kyle's character, Lana's husband, responds to that by saying, hey, listen, we know that this guy is a snake oil salesman. We know that he couldn't possibly live up. You know, I'm talking about Morgan Edge. We know that this guy is not going to follow through on all of his promises. But you know what? Following through on a few promises is better than none. And right now we feel forgotten by the big cities. We feel forgotten by our government. And that's why we're willing to give Morgan Edge a chance. Now, what an interesting stance that is to take. What a great way to present this story where Kyle is not a villain and Lois is not a villain. These are just two people with very clashing ideologies who are perhaps going to meet in the middle somewhere by the end of the series. Who knows? But the fact that that plot line is in there is amazing to me. And it once again ties back to how Superman began. You know, in, in, in action comics, you know, in, in the very first Superman comic book, he's going after woman beaters. He's going after people who take advantage of poor people. He's going after people who go after the common person. And the fact that this show, you know, is also tackling serious issues on that level. And it's not just about like, oh, never going to fight another superpowered alien. Like to me, that's very, very encouraging. Because of course you have the superpowered alien kind of, you know, right? In other words, you have the spectacle. You have a Superman who's fighting, you know, Master Chief Lex Luthor. And you get to have amazing Superman action and fights in the sky that end up in outer space and crashing back down to earth. You get to have the cool spectacle and you get to see Superman use his powers in all of these cool ways. But in there, there's a story being told that is, it's got something to say. There are morals in here. There are lessons to be learned. There is an entire sort of Superman morality that comes through the story that comes through the screen, it permeates through the screen because the the heart of this series, this series has heart and it has brain and it has something to say. And I just, I adore that. Um, 
And I could go on and on, but I'm going to move on to the next subject because if you guys really want to hear like long form dissections of all of the different aspects of that episode, uh, you really should just check out the Multiverse Musings vidcast this week and every week for the remainder of this season because uh, that's exactly what I'm going to be doing, breaking down each episode and going long form and full geek on all the different things I, I'm I'm picking up on from that series. But suffice it to say, we're two episodes in and Superman and Lois is basically everything I've been craving for the last 10 to 15 years when it comes to the type of Superman storytelling that I want to watch. So it's a pretty unbelievable feeling. Kind of like how unbelievable it is that the Snyder Cut is only two weeks away from being released. Isn't it insane? The, 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 the culmination of one of the wildest stories in cinematic history uh, is only two weeks away. We're going to finally get the, the much-vaunted Zack Snyder's Justice League in two weeks' time. And there's some stuff to discuss about that because... Some storyboards got leaked onto the web. There are some some posted up storyboards at an event in Dallas, Texas, where they're planning on hosting somewhat of a premiere for Zack Snyder's Justice League. And somebody took pictures of the storyboards or uh, or rather, I don't even know if, like, what to call them. It's writing on a big board that's been put up on walls and people can yeah, and, and people can read what Snyder had in mind for you know, kind of his general ideas for the type of Justice League story. He wanted to tell and where he would have gone in, Super, in, in Justice Leagues 2 and 3. And, you know, it's interesting having those on the web because people are wondering, people are wondering, is what is the purpose of this? Why is Snyder releasing this? Why did HBO or whomever tweet these out and let these get out into the public in advance? You know, what's the big play here? And in all honesty... I do feel that Snyder and his inner sanctum are really hoping to generate enough buzz to get sequels. And they know that Warner Brothers is not helping them promote this movie. And they know that it being a movie to begin with puts it at a bit of a disadvantage. Remember, it really seems like Snyder wanted to make it a miniseries, but ultimately Warner Brothers and Toby Emmerich sort of flexed their muscle over Warner Max and got them to make it just one long four-hour movie, which is going to make it a real tough pill to swallow to try to get casual and general audiences to check this thing out. So, you know, it's very clear that Snyder and his people are kind of on their own. And if they want to make this thing work, the only way they're going to get to make sequels is if fans make enough noise about it. But before we even focus on the noise, because that's the thing, if, if people are kind of worried about what's going to happen after the Snyder Cut comes out. You know, are we going to finally be able to like move past this campaign and now like, okay, you saw the movie and now let's move on and enjoy DC's future together. And the question is, are we going to be able to do that? Or are all the folks who campaigned for the Snyder Cut now going to just double and triple down into a renewed campaign to try to get the sequels made? But the interesting thing is, a campaign in this case is not going to do the trick. You know, the campaign worked this first time around because there already was a movie with which to work with. He had already shot the vast majority of what he wanted, and all they had to do was invest, I mean... 
almost $70 million, but all they had to do was invest money into finishing something that was already there, right? Already shot, already in the can. And, you know, like he said, he added maybe four or five minutes of additional new footage. But overall, they were able to do this because the movie already existed. To make a movie like this from scratch, that looks and feels like this, that has a cast like this, that has production values like this, you need like at least 200 million bucks. And that is where things get a little hairy now. Because Warner Max was willing to throw in the millions it needed to finish an existing movie. But for them to now bankroll an entire new movie, uh, that is a tall ask. And the only way you're going to get them to do that, and this is important, this is actually some advice. Because I know I have a lot of folks who are very invested in the Snyder Cut who check out this show. My advice for you, and the thing that you need to know, is that getting a sequel made is not just a matter of getting HBO Max and seeing the movie and 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 watching it on a loop. Because I'm sure some people are planning on like, we're just going to watch it all day for a week so, you know, on just a constant marathon just to up the number of streams it's getting so that HBO Max can give us our sequel. I'm sure there's all kinds of interesting harebrained schemes to try to get HBO Max to give you more of what you want, more of the Snyderverse. But let me tell you, the thing that's most important, an actual bit of data that they pay very close attention to, isn't just who signs up for a service, you know, who signs up for the service to get Snyder Cut, but they want to see who, who signs up and stays. Because they don't want fans who just pop in and out. They want to know that you are a customer base that they can rely on. That a whole bunch of you signed up for HBO Max and then stayed there for six months afterward. They want to see that they can count on the Snyder Cut people to be regular subscribers. If they see a huge flood of subscriptions on March 18th, followed by a huge wave of cancellations on March 19th, guess what? Even if millions of people stream that movie on the 18th, there will not be a sequel. So that's something that you need to tell your friends about. That's something that you need to be clear on. If your plan is to get this service and then ditch it immediately, then just so you know, you can do that. But you are not in any way helping the cause for a sequel. Because the only way they're going to invest the north of $200 million it would take to tell another story set in this world is if you guys justify the business. If you guys cough up the money and the sustained money to show them, okay, this is a fan base worth investing in. This is a fan base who we need to give more stuff to because look, they're being good to us. So just keep all that in mind because when it comes to the sequel, there's almost, there really isn't anything that Snyder could tease or that could come out that could ensure that a sequel is coming. Because at the end of the day, it's going to come down to dollars and cents. But he's no fool. He knows that the way you get those dollars and cents is by getting people talking. So this sequel has the potential to create... The only way this is going to work is if it creates enough potential to get a lot of people talking while at the same time flooding HBO Max's accounts with you know, new subscriptions. It has to be a combination of those two things. You know, people need to understand that they, history can't happen twice. They can't repeat this. 
because this was a very special scenario where the movie was already there and just needed finishing. So, of course, Warner Max is like, yeah, we don't mind throwing a few million at you so you could finish that. But if you think that they're going to go and make a whole new movie or a whole new, you know, miniseries based in this world, based on just the campaigning, it's not going to happen this time. So just keep that in mind. And in terms of the things that sequel that, that, that Snyder has been teasing, I mean, you know, it's some of it's interesting. Some of it isn't. Some of it is the scrapped plan, for example. There was a scrapped plan to have Bruce and Lois have a romance uh, in the wake of Superman's death that he was ultimately talked out of. But something that was confirmed finally is that at the conclusion of Snyder's uh, Justice League arc, Batman dies. Batman sacrifices himself to take, to take, to take down Darkseid. And the remnant of the Lois and Bruce idea uh, is now found in what happens between Superman and Lois. Because after Bruce's death, they have a son and they name him Bruce. And, uh, you know, that's nice. It's, it's interesting. It's kind of like uh, they, they said that he would, it, John, uh, pff, sorry, I'm, I'm a little over caffeinated. My brain is like overly fired up with all of this Bustelo. Let me just take another. Mm. Okay. So he said very much like Harry Potter that they would name their son Jonathan Bruce Kent. So similar to what they did in Harry Potter, where, you know, the in the flash forward, these heroes name their kids after some very important people from earlier in their childhood and dearly departed relatives. Uh, he would name, you know, Superman and Lois would name their, their kid Jonathan Bruce Kent. Um, and, you know, there's other little vague things, you know, uh, Aquaman ends up on virtually the same trajectory. He ends up becoming the king of Atlantis. Uh, Diana ends up becoming queen of Themyscira. Uh, Flash starts developing his powers to such a degree that he could be in two places at once and do all kinds of groovy things while trying to get his father out of prison with Cyborg helping him in that mission. You know, there were all these interesting little ways it could have gone. And like I said, Snyder's no fool. He's teasing his fan base with that, basically saying, if you guys want this, get excited about it now and start making a lot of noise. Because noise is part of it, but like we said, it can't be the only thing this time. Noise helped get released the Snyder Cut. You know, it helped make that campaign a success. In this particular case, it's going to take your commitment to their platform and your willingness to hang on there and show them that you're a dedicated customer. That's what it's going to take. And it's going to take a lot of you. Okay? So, um... Yeah, just to kind of, you know, generally address this idea of a sequel to the Justice League. Um, yeah, listen, and, and the, the, honestly, there's an aspect to all this that I'm personally mystified about, that I don't know how they're going to handle it. But you've got to think it's going to create a weird conflict because Jason Momoa, Gal Gadot, Ezra Miller, and even possibly Henry Cavill, they all are seemingly going to continue on on the big screen in some form. But what happens if there is suddenly, you know, let's just hypothetically say, let's say that Zack Snyder's Justice League comes out in two weeks and it does astoundingly well. 
and the reviews are great, and the subscriptions are historic, and the people stay for months, so HBO Max says, okay, we want to give you more of this. What happens to the people who already have other movies in the works, right? Because Gal Gadot and Patty Jenkins are already developing Wonder Woman 3, and they've already kind of pushed forth in their own sort of direction with those movies. So does that mean that Gal Gadot is going to play Wonder Woman in the nightmare sequence that is Justice League 2? Because Snyder has said he wants to do like a movie that's almost entirely set in the nightmare landscape. So does that mean that Gal Gadot would do that Justice League movie and then also do Wonder Woman 3 with Patty Jenkins, even though they're two very sort of different stories? Does this mean that Jason Momoa, who's currently developing a sequel for Aquaman with James Wan, does this mean that now he has to make sure that those two projects have some kind of synergy? I mean, Wan almost left when he thought he didn't have full creative control. If he now has to make his Aquaman sequel adhere to Zack Snyder's Justice League 2 on HBO Max, is he going to want to be a part of that? I don't know. But to me, the biggest one is Henry. To me, the biggest one is Henry because right now, I think there's a very real possibility that we're going to see more of him. And that's something I meant to bring up earlier when I was talking about the reboot, because that is one of the big, uncertain, lingering questions ever since they announced that reboot last week is, well, what's going to happen with Henry? You know, what about all of us who want to see his Superman fly again, who are going to be so excited to see him fly again on March 18th? You know, if they're rebooting, does that mean that this is really it? Does this mean that March 18th will be the final time we see Henry Superman? You know, there's a lot of concern about that. But for me, I don't see how this news of the reboot in any way stops him from appearing in the Shazam and Black Adam movies. I don't I don't see it. I don't see it. And when you consider that five or six months ago, Deadline and other very reputable places, actual industry trades confirmed that Cavill was in discussions with Warner Brothers about a new deal so that he could make appearances in other films while not getting his own solo movie. You know, the logic is there. The logic is there. They've already introduced his Superman, headless, mind you, but they've already introduced his Superman in the first Shazam movie. And we know that there is a history between Shazam, Black Adam, and Superman. And we also know that in real life, Dwayne Johnson and Henry Cavill are tight. They have the same manager. And Dwayne Johnson has been trying for years to get Black Adam versus Superman happening. Some sort of deal where he gets to fight Superman is all Dwayne Johnson has wanted for many years now. Even going so far as to commission Boss Logic to make a poster with Black Adam, you know, with him as Black Adam and Henry Cavill as Superman showing them fighting. You know, Dwayne Johnson is all about making that happen. And I've discussed that many a time in the past. So to me, this news of the reboot, the very first thing that came to mind was, well, does this negate Henry's chances of being in those movies? And the way I see it, it doesn't affect it in the slightest. It doesn't affect it in the least. And in fact, it all kind of works together because right now we're kind of heading in a direction where the folks running DC films want you to be comfortable with multiple versions of these characters. 
And let's just let's just use Batman as a case study right now. All right. Because this Flash movie that's coming out is going to be this weird amalgamation of old and new. It's going to be Ezra Miller's Flash, who we already know from the Snyderverse. And we're going to see Ben Affleck's Batman from the Snyderverse. But we also know that this is going to be introducing a whole bunch of new elements. And we're going to be seeing Michael Keaton's Batman. And we're going to be seeing Supergirl. We're going to be seeing all kinds. I'm sure there are some surprises that are going to make our heads fall off. But the point remains that Flashpoint is going to be an amalgamation of old things and new things. And trying to sort of set the stage for where DC is going next. Right? We know that about this Flash movie. But look at how they're handling Batman. Okay? But for all intents and purposes, it sounds like they're going to be writing Bruce, uh, Ben Affleck's Bruce Wayne out of the series so that Michael Keaton can step in as the official DCEU Batman. So whenever there's like any kind of crossover situation, whenever you need a mentor Batman, whenever you need a Batman presence in one of these sort of shared universe movies like ones that have Ezra Miller and, and Jason Momoa and Gal Gadot and whatever else they're introducing in the Flash movie. When you need a Batman for that, you got the Michael Keaton Batman. Meanwhile, Matt Reeves has his own Batman off on an island that is separate of what's happening with the shared movies, right? So we're looking at ultimately two Batman, the Keaton and the Battenson. I think they're potentially doing the same exact thing with Superman, where just like Keaton, Cavill will be the Superman that they could tag in whenever there's a story where you need a Superman from a larger universe to sort of tie things together. That's why he can appear in the Shazam movies. He could even appear in the Flash movie. He could appear in, 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 in an upcoming Justice League movie in a few years if they try to do something like that using a combination of these characters. So Henry will show up in anything and everything that has to do with the shared sort of DCEU, if you will, while the Abrams Superman will be like the Reeves Batman, sort of marketed and handled as its own entity. So that's kind of my hunch on this. And that's another reason why I'm not too worried about any of the decisions that Abrams is going to be making, because not only do I have Superman on Lois on TV, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to get to see a pretty baller Henry Cavill Superman show up in the Shazam verse. So that's why that's just another kind of aspect in all this. I don't think we're done with Henry, which is perhaps one of the reasons why I'm not really worried about this reboot. You know, there's a lot of people who are like legit, like worried. Their hearts hurt. You know, and my heart goes out to them because like I said, I've been through this before. You know, I've been through this before hearing about an actor you really liked, <clears throat> Brandon Routh, suddenly getting replaced by someone you don't know when you really thought that your version of Superman deserved a, a second solo chapter. I know what that feels like. I feel your pain. This is the fourth time I've had to do this, I think, overall. <laughs> but um, yeah, so... I'm not that heartbroken because I think we are going to get Henry in these Shazam movies. I don't think that any of this precludes. But now to tie all this back to how we got here. Justice League. Zack Snyder's Justice League. We know now it's been confirmed it ends on a massive cliffhanger. And in this story, Superman doesn't stay good. 
You know, yes, we know we've gotten glimpses of him smiling and the scene with Alfred and all that sort of stuff. But we know that Snyder is pushing forth on all this sort of nightmare imagery because he, you know, he's really into the flash forward where Lois has been killed. Superman has gone evil and the Justice League has to figure out a way to get him to not be evil. And a lot of it has to do with Darkseid manipulating Superman and manipulating certain things to happen. So with all of that in mind, it sounds like the Superman at the end of Zack Snyder's Justice League is in a completely different place than the Superman in the theatrical cut of Justice League. And while the Superman from the theatrical cut can transition seamlessly into the Shazam movies, the Superman from Zack Snyder's Justice League cannot. If we're going to spend this entire movie with him in the black suit, and then we're going to end on a cliffhanger where he's still black suit Superman, and we're ending on a cliffhanger that involves the nightmare sequence and an evil Superman... I don't see how Henry gets to do that movie and do the Shazam appearances at the same time. Those are two like very different versions of the character. You know, listen, I I know we're going into the multiverse, but if you mean to, if you think that they're going to allow Henry to be both black suit, evil Superman in the Justice League Zack Snyder movies, while also being classic Superman in the Shazam verse movies and there is the J.J. Abrams version of Superman in the reboot. If you think they're going to have like one actor playing two versions plus a third version, I don't think you're reading the tea leaves quite right here. Okay? So that's another thing to sort of factor into all this when we discuss the idea of Zack Snyder's Justice League getting a sequel is, okay, but what would that mean for all the other actors who have big screen appearances lined up? It's going to create a clash. We're going to have to create new deals and new contracts. And by all accounts, Henry was more than happy to turn the page on Snyder's creative decisions. He was very much in favor of a lot of the changes that happened in a lot of the interviews. When he talks about the Superman that we saw in the theatrical cut, he speaks of it in glowing terms. And that's the thing. I just saw that movie again on Tuesday. Because I had Brett Miro, my my longtime friend and former Revengers podcast co-host, I had him over here because we recorded an audio commentary for the theatrical cut of Justice League. And I'm excited to share that with you guys at some point before March 18th as a, as a way to commemorate the death of the theatrical cut in a way. Uh, we will be releasing that audio commentary. It, I think you're going to like it quite a bit. But while watching that, it became just so clear to me that if you fix the effects on his face, if you just make that terribly blurred mouth of his actually look way better, the Superman in that movie is pretty spot on. You know, there's like a line or two that like I'm not in love with. I don't love the itchy thing and the whole truth. Just, yeah, I'm a big fan of justice and truth, whatever. Like it's a little on the nose. It's a little corny, but overall, the vast majority of what he says and how he acts, the way Henry, if you, I know it's hard to see past the blurry mouth, but if you pay attention to the acting, if you pay attention to the way he plays the character throughout the theatrical cut, Henry's awesome as a much more classic Superman. And I know that's the version that he wants to continue on. So if I'm Henry Cavill, also, 
I'm in a tough spot with this with this uh, Justice League movie, because on the one hand, I'm glad it's getting people to think about me again as Superman, but on the other hand, it's not the version of the character that I want to keep playing. I want to play the version that Dwayne Johnson wants me to play in these Shazam movies. I want to be OG Superman. So what happens if all the fan base is going, but we want you to be this one? Like I'm just, it's going to create a weird sort of conflict. And if I'm Henry Cavill, I almost don't know how to play this, right? Because he's not, you know, he was happy to move on from Snyder's creative thinking. And yet it's Snyder's universe and fandom that could get him back as Superman one day. You know, so it's like he has to walk a real fine line between wanting to do the future and do something different while also not pissing off the Snyder fans who helped this Snyder cut to come out to begin with and is giving his Superman another shot at the spotlight. It's such a weird sort of dynamic, you know, and I can't imagine what the the strategic meetings he's having with Danny Garcia sound like these days. Because how much do you want to embrace the Snyder Cut? How much do you want to distance yourself from it? And it's just, you know, it's a very interesting sort of area to to examine. And personally for me, I think it's extremely unlikely that Zack Snyder's Justice League will get a sequel. I think the amount of business it would have to do, the amount of positive buzz it would have to generate... I don't know if it's realistically possible. And listen, if I'm wrong, cool. I'm all in favor of it. If they if they find a way to make this work, cool. And if I like the first one, I'll definitely watch two and three. So I'm not, you know, I don't have an opinion one way or the other. If it happens, great. But when I look big picture, when I look macro at the situation, I have a hard time seeing how this story continues past here. I just do. And honestly, it's because, I, you know, I've been looking back at what happened with Justice League lately. It's been very sort of top of mind because of the audio commentary that I that I recorded with Brett, because I actually just appeared on the Hops and Box Office Flops podcast with Thomas Kelly. Uh, that'll be coming out next week. We, we do a whole long dissection of the theatrical cut while drinking lots of beers. In fact, I have two left from my six-pack. I drank four beers while discussing <laughs> the theatrical cut yesterday. Uh, and I got two left, so uh, Friday night party night here at Casa Robles, everybody. But yeah, so I've been thinking a lot about this Justice League movie and this situation again. And obviously, you know, the conversation with Batman on film with Bill last week. Also, you know, it's I've been analyzing that point in history for a while. And the the thing that nobody seems to want to admit or face. Uh, over on the Snyder, over in the Snyder fandom, over on the Snyder side of things, is just how little interest there was in this Justice League on opening weekend, and that is very important because as of opening weekend, nobody knew exactly what had happened to this movie or the full extent. You know, in terms of the general viewing public. Average, you know, Joe Q film goer didn't know anything about the the large-scale overhaul. And even the people who knew about Joss Whedon coming on and they heard about The Hollywood Reporter, everyone was sold the very same story, and most people believed it, which was, no, this is Zack Snyder's movie. 
Joss Whedon just came on for some additional reshoots and pickups. This is Zach's vision. And why did they think that? They didn't think that because they're naive. They think that because that's what they were spoon-fed for months and months. All the executives said it. All the producers said it. All the actors said it at Comic-Con. Everyone told the fans, this is Zack Snyder's movie. The movie that you're seeing on November 17th is Zack Snyder's movie. It is the rightful continuation of Batman versus Superman. And that Joss Whedon was really just there to help out. But you're getting Zack's movie. That's what everyone was told until they knew it was all a lie. And even the people who believed my reporting back in May of that year, even the people who believed Batman on film, even the people who, you know, they make up a small segment within a small segment of the fan base. They do not exemplify the entire general public. So there was a sliver of the fandom that had some acceptance and was not in denial about what happened with Snyder and Whedon and the way the studio completely took this movie away from Snyder. So going into that weekend, the vast majority of the world viewed this as Zack Snyder's movie. And only enough people showed up to make $93 million worth of opening weekend box office. Let that sink in for a second. Because a movie doesn't open low because it's a bad movie. It opens low because no one's interested. Okay? A bad movie has a terrible second weekend because after the first weekend, everyone goes and tells their friends, don't bother. That's, that's when you know that it's the movie that hurt everything. But when it opens low, that means that the actual movie itself, people weren't interested in. And all the trailers for that movie, they didn't even use Whedon footage. All the trailers we're from Zack's movie. This whole thing was sold to the public as, here's the next chapter of the BVS story. Here's what happened after Superman died. Here's where we're going next. And so few people cared by that point about the first ever Justice League movie. So few people cared about seeing the continuation of BVS that it opened to 93 million bucks. And I know that we want to hang that on the movie. We want to say that's because it was a Frankenstein's monster. That's because of Henry Cavill's face. That's because this or that. But the bottom line is that is revisionist history. That is revisionist history. And while it, it and listen, we would love to conflate our hatred for the way the studio handled Snyder's departure using the death of his daughter to explain how they maneuvered in a new director. Like, a lot of us want to conflate the rage we feel towards that injustice with the Justice League movie itself. And we want to say that that theatrical cut was this horrible abomination. But in actuality, the movie is, first of all, it's a miracle that it plays at all as well as it did, considering they did it all in about six months time. But the thing is, nobody showed up to see it. That was the problem. Ultimately, what ended up being the issue with the theatrical cut of Justice League wasn't that it was bad. It's that nobody cared. Nobody cared. And that's the story. Because I'll tell you right now, it's a fairly harmless 
relatively likable movie. I, I mean, I forget about it every time I watch it. By the time the credits stop rolling and I've left, I, I've already forgotten most of the movie. All right. It's not a special or memorable or incredible movie, but it's also not a total disaster. And it sets up some stuff for the future in a way that even the people who are the biggest Snyder defenders in the world, they will admit there was really kind of like nothing wrong with this movie. There's a couple of things that, you know, they'd love to take back, but overall it was fine. And had they continued on and given us the Legion of Doom with Deathstroke and Jesse Eisenberg's Lex Luthor, like there was a potential for where this plan B was going to go. And they gave each character kind of their own place to go. Granted, it's not what Snyder had wanted, but when you watch this movie without the personal grudge you have against Warner Brothers and you just watch it for what it is, it's not hard to see that this might have worked if people showed up. This might have worked if people just based on the fact that it's Justice League, if just based on the fact that, hey, listen, I may not have loved BVS, but I love these characters and I do want to see what happens next. You know, if if more people would have shown up and had and given some curiosity to that theatrical cut, it, it'd be interesting to see how things might have gone. But the bottom line is the interest in Justice League was killed before it ever even came out. And that says a lot about what people thought about BVS the prior year. And it also goes back to they should have just released the Ultimate Edition. Because even though it's still a film that is polarizing, it at least plays much better than the theatrical cut. And ultimately, I don't hang any of this on Snyder. Because they put a mangled version of BVS into theaters. And then that mangled version unsold people on Justice League. So Warner Brothers really screwed the pooch on this whole thing. It's unbelievable to think. But I think that's why I have a hard time seeing the kind of interest that this re-release is going to garner. Because if nobody cared back when this was the fresh, first-time-ever Justice League movie, if so few people cared that it only opened to 93 million bucks, uh, how are we going to suddenly say that four years later there's, there's more interest for an alternate version of a movie they didn't care about to begin with? You know, this is a movie that's going to play amazingly well to Snyder's base, to the people who are already in the fandom, to the people who are already invested in Snyder's vision, this is going to be Shangri-La for them. This is going to be an amazing period of time when that movie comes out and they get to watch it and see it and analyze it and talk with their friends and do all the things they've been waiting on doing for four years. This is going to be incredible for them. But in terms of drawing in outside casual viewers or general audiences... I think the fact that the theatrical cut opened as low as it did, it doesn't bode well for people's general interest in Zack Snyder's Justice League because they thought the first one was too, and they didn't show up. And now I'm going to wrap up with two listener questions that were sent in. Uh, there were there were more, but a lot of them I actually already addressed. A lot of you wanted to know what I thought about the Snyder sequel prospects and what I think about the storyboards leaking and whether or not, you know, like what's the strategy here? So I've kind of addressed all that stuff. So the only two that I've got, oh, wait a minute, where's Matt? 
Matt Vernier asked me something and it's not on my list. I have to get that in there. But in the meantime, uh, Marco Pintaric or Pinteric asked me over in the, uh, the Revengers Lounge on Facebook. Uh, he, uh, he asked me in our private group, when can we expect to see anything from James Gunn's The Suicide Squad? And my question is, I mean, my answer is, I'm guessing May. Right now, you know, we're living in kind of a new era when it comes to film production and film promotion because of the quarantining, because of the pandemic, because of the way the movie going process has been changed or, you know, forced to change because of historical situations. Everything seems to be happening at a different, on a much different timetable than we're used to. But looking at the way HBO Max and Warner have been handling their promotions lately, I think we're looking at about three months. They seem to think that three months is enough time to promote a movie. You know, there used to be a time where a year out, you get a teaser. Then like nine months out, you get trailer one. Then six months out, you get trailer two. And then when you're about a month out, you get trailer three, the final big sell. And then there's all the TV spots. That's like the traditional sort of model that whether we realize it or not, that's kind of been the cycle on promoting movies for a lot of our lives. <laughs> and now look at how they did Kong versus Godzilla, right? Cause that's coming out at the end of March. And when did they finally give us our first look at that movie in January? So Warner brothers and HBO max seem to think three months gives us enough time to get people to want to see this movie on HBO Max or in theaters. Three months is enough time to sell this movie. And when you consider that James Gunn's Suicide Squad comes out in middle of, in, in August somewhere, you go back three months, that's May. So I wouldn't be surprised if somewhere in May, possibly late April, but somewhere in May is my best guess as to when we're going to finally get a full trailer for James Gunn's The Suicide Squad. And I, I'm very much looking forward to seeing what he's come up with there. Then there's Garrett, Garrett Grev from Batman on Film. Here I am excitedly saying the names of members of the Batman on Film team. Last week it was Peter. Hi, Peter. I hope you're listening and watching again. I will excitedly sneak your name in there whenever, Mr. Vera. Or is it Vera? Uh, but now it's Garrett. Hi, Garrett. So Garrett from Batman on Film had a question. He said, what are your thoughts on Superman's black suit? I wish I knew how Minnesotans speak. I want to like learn that accent so I could read it in a Minnesotan. But isn't that more of like a Wisconsin? I have no idea. But I'm going to learn it for Garrett's next question. I promise. Watch, he doesn't even probably speak like a Minnesotan. But anyway, uh, he, Garrett asks, what are your thoughts on Superman's black suit? It seems like it has taken on a life of its own in the minds of some fans and has now shown up on Superman and Lois as well. Were you a big fan of this look during the reign of the Superman storyline? Could you ever have predicted that it could have so much representation once you add in a black cape? I personally don't get the fascination, to be honest. Uh, Garrett, it's funny you mention that, because over on the Multiverse Musings pod, uh, vidcast, when we were discussing Superman and Lois, since this episode does, inv does include a glimpse at an alternate universe and an evil Superman in black, um, you know, we, we, we touched on this a little bit. 
And my feelings are this. The black suit from the comics, I dug it for what it was. But more than anything, I appreciated it as a story device. I appreciated it for what it symbolized. I understood that this is a suit that Superman has to wear because it's imbued with special Kryptonian techno technology that helps his cells regenerate and, and, and absorb the power of the sun at a, at a better rate for him so that he could fully come back to life and this and that. Like, I always, like, I dug the look, but I also understood that it served a purpose. And that's kind of my thing. That, that, that's my big question when it comes to Zack Snyder's Justice League, which is, will it serve a story purpose or does he just think it looks cool? You know, so I, I, I kind of want to know how it's being used. You know, the, the, to me, that's the big question, because if they do somehow sort of explain it and there is like a logic to why he's wearing that and not his classic suit. Then bring it on. I'm all for it. There's a reason for it. It looks pretty cool. Sometimes I think people forget that we've already seen Henry Cavill in this costume on the big screen already. People forget about that whole scene in Man of Steel where he's talking to Zod in a black suit with a black cape. The whole nine. People seem to like forget that as they clamor to see him in his black suit this time around. But for me, as long as it serves a purpose... I'm down. And as a matter of fact, now I can actually offer you an on-the-spot response to whether or not it serves a purpose. Because I was right. They did just release the Superman-centric teaser, and they did it when I was done. But here I am. I'm back in the studio just to respond to this because it correlates to your question there, Garrett. So I said I would be really appreciative if it actually had a plot reason for existing and isn't just for for style's sake and from this trailer or this little snippet that they just released of of somber clark walking through the scout ship walking through you know this version of the character's fortress of solitude and there are these different suits kind of coming out in that hallway revealing themselves to him as he hears important quotes and memories from his past from very important people in his life. You see all these different sorts of Kryptonian suits being shown to him. And one of them is the classic red and blue. So the red and blue is there and available to him right from the beginning as he's walking around, you know, right from the beginning of his return from death. Because in the shot, he's wearing the red and black, you know, like the, the plaid shirt and the black slacks that we've, we've seen Clark in a few times now in this movie. Um, so he's walking through in his return from death out, you know, clothing. And the suit that he ultimately puts on is the black suit. And as of right now, it doesn't appear that there will be a plot-driven thing, right? Because he seems to be, you know, alive and fine and walking down the hall. He doesn't look injured. He doesn't look like he needs a an extra special suit to help him get back on his feet. It looks like perhaps he chooses the black suit for some other sort of arbitrary reason. So, you know, we got to see the movie. But for now, they show us that he has access to the classic red and blue, but he seems to be choosing the black for some reason or another. So 
Listen, you know, I, I, I got to see the movie before I fully judge. I think the teaser is pretty epic. I'm surprised that they didn't use any of the Hans Zimmer music for this. You'd think, you know, in this 48-second glimpse of trying to get people excited and nostalgic for Man of Steel and getting them excited to see and reacquainted to see Henry Cavill Superman, you'd think there'd be a little, you know, da-da in there somewhere. But there wasn't. But all in all, teasers out, looks good, black suit, not really my thing, and it doesn't look like they're necessarily going to explain it. So we'll see what happens there. Um, but now before I wrap up, I'm going to address what Matt Vernier, former Revenge of the Fans contributor, and actually I shouldn't even say former because uh, he never quite left. He's still with us. And he's going to be with us in our next evolution. Hang in, hang tight. But um, Matt asked me a question. And Matt, I owe you a response. So he asked me, what's your hype level for the Falcon and Winter Soldier compared to WandaVision and the other upcoming shows? Uh, arguably, it's my most anticipated Marvel series, bar none. Um, especially because... Similar to what's going on with Superman and Lois, it feels like some wish fulfillment for me. It feels like somebody heard the exact kind of series I want and is giving it to me. You know, because several months back, I said, you know, it's going to be interesting if the Falcon and the Winter Soldier ends up being more about the search for Captain America, you know, poetically speaking, than it is just about being these two guys trying to beat Baron Zemo. You know, I wanted there to be an interesting subplot about Sam assuming the mantle of Captain America and what that means to him and what it means to be a Captain America in an, in an America that's so divided right now. And then, you know, about a month ago, a composer for the series said some things in an interview that seemed to back all that up in a very sort of meaningful and interesting way that there is some heft and some gravitas to this story. And the more I learn about it, <clears throat> the more it seems like, yeah, this thing's going to be right up my alley, man. Because look, here you're going to have Sam Wilson, who seems almost resistant to becoming Captain America because he understands the responsibility of it all. You know, Steve, his, his, his mentor and friend has given him the shield and says, this is you. But he has to figure out, is this me? And in the meantime, they're also showing us that U.S. Agent is in this series. And U.S. Agent is interesting. To me, he's a more interesting villain than Baron Zemo, even though I love Daniel Bruhl. And I'm very excited to see Bruhl come back and show us more to this Baron Zemo. He's a brilliant actor. But U.S. Agent is interesting because you can see that there's going to be almost like a racial subplot here where once the present day uh, Captain America goes missing. Because I don't think the general public knows. You know, in this world, I don't think the general public knows that Steve went back in time and quietly lived in, into old age while you know another version of him was doing all those heroics. All they know is that after Thanos disappeared, after Thanos was defeated and Tony Stark died, Captain America suddenly vanished shortly thereafter. That's all they know. So here you have Sam Wilson in the wake of that, trying to figure out if he wants to assume the mantle. And in the interim, 
a white guy trying to be Captain America but calling himself U.S. agent has entered the mix and is starting to capture the public's imagination. And he's going to be, you know, the, the, what's interesting about U.S. Agent is the character's comic book origin. You know, he's supposed to be like the inverse of Captain America, where Captain America preaches a message of patriotism that is synonymous with heroism. Like the mere idea of loving your country makes you heroic. Willing to do whatever it takes for your country is inherently heroic. That's kind of Captain, Mer Captain America's message. While U.S. agent flips that on its head because he's he's also patriotic, but he's a villain. He looks at things very, very differently. He sees the problems affecting this country very differently than Captain America does. So even though they both love America, they both have entirely different vision, entirely different visions for what this country is, can, and should be. And so. It's interesting to have U.S. agents arrive in the wake of Captain America's disappearance, trying to essentially replace him and take on the mantle. And you have to wonder, you know, he because he is ultimately a villain. So I feel like we, you know, we're going to meet him as a hero, probably. But then we're going to very quickly learn that he's a villain and he might have very strong opinions about there being a black Captain America thinking that a black man does not deserve to represent this country. You know, so we'll see how that actually plays out and how sort of heavy-handed it is, how ham-fisted it is, or if they handle it with a nice balance, because that could be riveting stuff. You know, it's an interesting way to sort of get at the core of what's going on in this country between, you know, that's the interesting thing about the two extremes of our political divide. Both sides think the other is the villain. Both sides are convinced that they are the hero and the other people are radical and insane, yet we all just love our country and want what's best. So in an odd way, you can kind of look at it that way, too. Just like Captain America exemplifies patriotism in a positive way, U.S. agent exemplifies patriotism in a negative way, but they both have the common thread of love of country and patriotism and this idea of, I will do anything so that my country can continue to live on and people can live in the way that I think has the most dignity and freedom. You know, both sides have their own quirks, obviously, but at their heart, we have a lot more common ground than we realize. And it's just interesting in Captain America, in this Falcon and Winter Soldier series, I'm going to be very intrigued to see this dynamic between Sam Wilson struggling with assuming the responsibility of Captain America and this U.S. agent figure who's shown up seemingly ready to assume the mantle and he probably exemplifies a certain sort of classic way of viewing Captain America that uh, maybe there's a lot more darkness lying beneath the surface as to who they think should be representing this here country. So hope that answers your question. I hope everyone uh, enjoyed episode 127 of the Fanboy Podcast. I hope that you'll consider leaving me a review on your podcatcher of choice. I know I often single out AT&T, um, AOL, pod, AOL, what's wrong with me? AT&T, AOL, what am I going to say next? Uh, 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 Earthlink? No. Um, 
over on Apple Podcasts. I know I tend to single out Apple Podcasts, but that's because I have a bias. I'm an iPhone user, so you know that's the, the that's the application I am most familiar with. But if you are not an iPhone user, if you get your podcast some other way, if you could do me the favor of going to your podcast app and leaving me a positive review, I would greatly appreciate it. It continues to help this show to grow and to help the scope of the uh, audience here expand a bit. And that's going to become important in coming weeks. I've got an announcement of sort coming soon. I'm not going to even tease what it is yet. But suffice it to say, uh, having your support and you spreading some more positive word of mouth about me will be very valuable to me uh, when this announcement is made. Okay? So for now, uh, I hope you enjoyed the show. Check out the Multiverse Musings vidcast this week and every week where I will be on there with Adam Basciano and Stephen Marshall discussing every new episode of Superman and Lois. Keep an eye out for an audio commentary for the theatrical cut of Justice League that I recorded with Brett Thomas Miro. Also keep an eye out for the Hops and Box Office Flops podcast for their episode on the theatrical cut of Justice League will have me getting sloshed and talking about that movie with some very funny people. So uh, until next week, life is chaos. Be kind. Adios. Adios.